Well, thank you very much. And can I say how pleased I am to be here again a second time in this year um, and to have been invited actually to extend uh, what I said earlier in the year about 30 years of HIV, looking at it from a political perspective, which we don't often do. We tend to think of it in terms of clinicians and, and what's happened in terms of treatment and so on, and we don't really talk about how we got to where we've got to today, and it did go through a great deal of uh, ups and, and downs. So I do welcome the opportunity to come, particularly um, because I have a, a very a feeling that so much of our history, whether it's about politics, whether it's about equality, whether it's about social issues, whether it's about health, there is a real lack of knowledge um, in what went before and an assumption things have always been as they have been. And I'm not saying that applies to this audience, but it does apply generally. And I do get my, find myself getting a little frustrated when people don't actually know about the history and what went behind us. And sometimes people say, well, we don't need to know it's the future that matters. Well, I believe that you often determine the future on the past. Um, and uh, so I'm always very happy to talk about what, what went before. Um, the history of the HIV epidemic is, amongst other things, a history of a battle to retain and establish an ethical position to undesirable communities in relation to an unknown and unquantifiable threat. Um, it can be described, in, I think, in a multitude of ways. It's been a roller coaster ride of ignorance, of triumphs and failures, of fear, of panic and determination. And it was affected by public opinion, the media, the personal views of MPs and ministers, and became a political issue right from the onset. And I, I, as before, I felt the only way I could tell the story is to follow a timeline and accompany it with quotes, which I hope helped to capture the mood of each moment. It's a timeline that starts with a suspected death in 1981, when a 49-year-old man died from a rare illness in St. Thomas's Hospital in London and became, became the first recorded case of AIDS. A year later, it was the death of Terry Higgins on the 4th of July, 1982, that proved to be a watershed moment. In his memory, THT was born, the Trust being the first charity in the UK to be set up in response to the challenge of HIV and AIDS. It was initially named Terry Higgins Trust, established by his close friends and his partner Rupert Whittaker, with the aim of reducing the spread of HIV and promoting good sexual health, safe sex, the use of condoms, and to provide services on a national and local level to people with or at risk of contracting HIV, whilst at the same time campaigning for greater public understanding of the impact of HIV and AIDS. There was a meeting held at Red Line Square where there was a groundswell of support which enabled THT to raise enough funds to formally found the organisation, and open, so it opened a bank account, it, set, it adopted a constitution, and its name was changed from Terry Higgins Trust to Terence Higgins Trust to make it sound more formal. But strangely enough, the name was not without controversy, for at that time there was a Conservative MP called Terence Higgins. Now, Lord Higgins, as he is now, was raised great concern that somehow people might think that somehow he was connected with this gay organisation. 
Um, it was the determination, though, of a handful of people 30 years ago that led to the Trust becoming the UK's leading HIV and AIDS charity and the largest in Europe. And it was a genuine example of the concept of self-help, a banding together of gay men who did not believe that the authorities necessarily knew what was best for them or even wanted to know. The positive policies that were ultimately adopted undoubtedly owed a great deal to the experiences of those most affected. But THT was not the only organisation attempting to make gay men aware of the risks they were taking. MESMAC created pilot sites around the country based on a community development approach, promoting HIV prevention with gay, bisexual and men who had sex with men. And the community development approach, which still continues, now also includes the wider issues around health, social, uh, health, uh, social affairs and the equality agenda. MESMAC has strong roots in Yorkshire, and coming from Yorkshire, I was pleased to be asked to be its Yorkshire patron. And whilst the gay community, however, was organising itself, public awareness was also growing. And by the end of 1982, people were beginning to know something about this new disease, this American disease. It was, however, not treated with the seriousness it warranted. It was new and it was unknown. And jokingly described as the gay sniffle, all gay men with a cold or any other illness were ascribed to have AIDS. And that's illustrated by the quote from Aaron Clark, MP, who was then Conservative Minister. We went to the Bentley Rally in Kensington Gardens. He looks ghastly. Presumably, he's got AIDS. Um, that was followed by a BBC Horizon programme, Killer in the Village, about the growth of the disease in New York. And that really heightened concern creating a resurgence of the moral majority. They called for the remedicalization of homosexuality and the denial of such a thing as a gay identity. Homosexuality, they want on, is not natural. It goes against the laws of nature. The right to sexual self-expression was clearly not acceptable to people who believed that being gay could be cured. The virulent tabloids produced headlines which referred to the march of the gay plague and the monster in our midst. It is a homo plague. This prompted an eloquent response from Chris Smith MP, whoever first labelled it the gay plague had a good ear for an alliterative headline, but little sense of truth and decency. But it was not the spread of AIDS amongst the gay community that woke the politicians up and created real fear. It was a headline in the Mail on Sunday killer blood in British hospitals, raising scares of possible contamination of the blood supply. This prompted Gwyneth Dunwoody MP in 1983 to ask the first question on AIDS in the House of Commons. Is the UK self-sufficient in blood and blood products? How many haemophiliacs have died of AIDS? And the level of panic that created amongst MPs was shown by 59 questions being asked and the demand for an immediate debate. The safety of blood and blood products became an issue of importance, not least because many of the blood products came from the United States from recruited paid donors who could potentially have been affected with HIV AIDS. But we were not exempt in this country. There was also non-heated products being used by the NHS, which could have been contaminated. The consequences were a number of deaths and people with haemophilia being afraid of becoming infected so refusing treatment. Victims of HIV were viewed in two ways. Haemophiliacs who were labelled innocent victims 
and gay men as authors of their own misfortune. But within two years, trans transfusion centers were routinely screening donors for HIV, but the drama continued and rose to a crescendo when it was heard that a large number of gay men from the United States were planning to attend a festival in Edinburgh. This was perceived as a breeding ground for the mysterious disease now named Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome and as the disease of the decade. The festival went ahead without a major catastrophe, but the panic didn't abate. The government issued a diktat that gay men should not donate blood and the Department of Health, in its ignorance and anxiety, decreed that anyone with HIV should be isolated in hospital with barrier nursing, meaning the wearing of hats, gloves, and aprons. It was the first, it was the time when HIV and AIDS in reality meant death. And as the number of young men died, hysteria grew, and people confirmed as having the virus found themselves being ostracized for fear of infection. They developed a real crisis mentality heightened by the media. And the RCN, for instance, predicted that there could be one million cases if the current trend continued a statement dismissed by Kenneth Clark, then Secretary of State for Health, as alarmist and based on fancy mathematics. But scare stories grew. Plumbers might affect your system. Communion wine could be infected. Never use the same toilet, never drink from the same cup, or have a casual social contact, and never ever use a chef or a doctor or a nurse who is HIV positive. The Fire Brigade's Union forbade mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation or safety inspections in gay clubs. And the panic even spread onto the high seas. A passenger on the Queen Elizabeth, when he discovered that a man with HIVs was on the ship, said, this dreadful thing has cropped up and we were not even told about it. It's terrifying to think this guy could have been drinking in the bar alongside me. Sir Keith Joseph, Secretary of State for Education said, on hearing the details of the virus and how it's transmitted, I'm unable to cope with the news. And Jill Knight, a member of the Conservative Health Committee, took it a stage further by saying, this is horrifying. Steps must be taken as quickly as possible to protect the general public. And as the tabloid media once, uh, once again fueled this, this attitude, stigma began to rear its ugly head deterring men from test, going for testing and impeding disclosure. MPs called for the 1889 Notification of Diseases Act to be implemented, meaning that legal steps could be taken to keep a person in hospital, in sterile conditions, and be prevented from giving a blood transfer. And although Kenneth Clark rejected that call, he did enact powers to detain people with AIDS in hospital against their wishes although he was advised that this might deter people from coming forward for testing and treatment. But I suppose if we are realistic, we have to understand that he had to respond to the high level of fear, both amongst his colleagues and the community at large. And in spite of that negative response, he did assign £1 million for HIV testing and £900,000 to combat aid. But what is interesting is that whilst the MPs and some of the clinicians were consumed with anxiety, Within the, the British Medical Association, their human resources lawyers were arguing for the human rights of HIV-positive people and that there had to be a moral and ethical approach to their rights for testing and treatment. But perhaps one of the key ethical developments of the time was in the testing of new medicines and the role of the pharma companies. 
Gay activists and patients worked with them on their research. The science was at such an early stage that patients were as qualified as the doctors treating them. And in 1988, AZT was the first drug that was developed, followed by other therapies in 1990, and ultimately recognition of the needs of combination therapies. It was, however, the change of the Secretary of State, who rather than reacting to the hysteria, took the situation seriously and decided that government had a bigger role to play. That was when Norman Fowler became the Secretary of State for Health and Social Security. His first action was to give 6.3 million to fund London hospitals with HIV patients and for the training of AIDS counselors in the NHS. The expert advisory group on AIDS, a non-departmental, non-statutory body was set up to advise the Chief Medical Officer for Health, Donald Aitchison, who saw AIDS as the greatest challenge to communicable diseases for many decades. 25 million pounds was given for research and the first national campaign don't Aid AIDS was launched. The papers carried full-page advertisements sponsored by government, but only after getting approval of Barney Hayhoe MP, a devout Catholic, who was chair of the interdepartmental ministerial group. And at the same time, the government rather bravely gave funding to the Terence Higgins Trust, making it possible for them to appoint their first two members of staff, one of whom was Nick Partridge, now Sir Nick Partridge, who has just retired after 30 years working for THT and ultimately becoming its chief executive officer. And during this time, HIV and AIDS hit the headlines again with the death of the film star Rock Hudson. It was a worldwide media event. He was the first major figure to have died of AIDS, but the tone was different. Strangely, there was no hysterical outburst, rather sadness at the death of a famous actor. And there followed a series of initiatives. A campaign subcommittee was set up with Mrs. Thatcher's approval, chaired by Willie Whitelaw, MP, Deputy Prime Minister. The all-party parliamentary group on AIDS was established by a Liberal peer, Lord Kilmarnock, Baroness Masham and Chris Smith, and supported medics. And their job was to inform MPs to try and demystify the issue and report on progress. A major initiative of the Cabinet Committee was its, to authorise the introduction of clean needle exchange for drug users in order to reduce transmission and harm reduction. Uh, and, and harm reduction. Um, it went alongside a Don't Inject AIDS campaign. It was a campaign deliberately designed to shock, showing the dangers to drug users of sharing syringes. One poster showed a body in a plastic bag another a blood-stained syringe. The key needle exchange policy resulted in one of the lowest rates amongst injecting drug users in Europe and further afield and has remained policy ever since. But it wasn't easy to change attitudes. Edinburgh was the first city to adopt needle exchange, but it was seen as condoning drug use, with the police sitting outside exchange clinics waiting to arrest drug users. There was the absolute opposition to any weakening of a punitive drug control policy by the Scottish ministers, John Mackay and subsequently Michael Forsyth, who believed that the supply of needles to addicts could be seen as, as condoning and encouraging use. But a big disappointment at the time was the refusal of government to approve teaching in schools. Teaching about AIDS, an education document for schools, and written by my colleague Baroness Massey, was not allowed to be circulated on the grounds that its style would encourage and promote young people to have sex 
and could also mask encouragement and promotion of homosexuality. And as might be expected, not all approved of this burst of activity. Opposition perhaps most clearly expressed by James Anderton, the controversial Chief Constable of Greater Manchester, to a national conference of police officers when he said, I see increasing evidence of people swearing about in a human cesspool of their own making. Must ask why homosexuals freely engage in sodomy and other obnoxious practices knowing the dangers involved. Which prompted Norman Fowler's rather snappy reply, the government does not have time for the luxury of a moral argument on AIDS. And all these initiatives gave support to the campaigners and changed attitudes. For instance, the RCN one time uh, being very anti ruled that any nurse who refused to care for people with AIDS could be found guilty of unprofessional behavior and be disciplined. And Gavin Strang MP introduced a private member's bill on AIDS control, which was supported by Tony Newton, the DSS minister, which gave resources to health and social services for their work on AIDS. So there was a policy consensus emerging across the Chamber of the Commons which stressed a liberal middle-of-the-road approach based on safer sex and a consensual strategy on health education. But the big question was what action should the government take to prevent the spread of the virus? On the 21st of November 1984, there was an emergency debate in the Commons opened by Norman Fowler, who announced £20 million was to be spent in 12 months on a public information campaign to include a leaflet drop to 23 million households, reputed to be one of the biggest public health campaigns ever seen. And it was no surprise, of course, that not all his Conservative colleagues supported their Secretary of State. Some wanted a stronger punitive approach and could not even accept the sentiment of Patrick Cormack MP, who said, while recognising the sin, one should love the sinner. But wording of belief that the campaign ran into trouble with the highest politician in the land, the Lord Chancellor. Lord Hailsham. In a letter to William Whitehall, he said, I'm convinced there must be some limit to vulgarity. Could they not use literate sexual intercourse? If that is thought to be too narrow, then why not sexual relations or physical practices, but not sex, or worse, having sex? And no one argues with the Lord Chancellor. So, of course, sexual intercourse were the words that were used in the now famous AIDS Don't Die of Ignorance Tombstones campaign. It was a long but very clearly worded campaign. Don't die of ignorance. AIDS is not prejudiced. It can kill anyone, gay or straight, male or female. Anyone can get AIDS from sexual intercourse. So the more partners, the greater the risk. Protect yourself. Use a condom. AIDS is not prejudiced. It can kill anyone. At the same time, as those leaflets were going into every household with those words, the BBC and independent television produced programmes of their own, warning of the dangers. And the dramatic tombstone campaign was accompanied by the government establishing the Independent National AIDS Trust to coordinate the voluntary sector. The AIDS helpline was set up, and Mrs Thatcher gave her one and only speech on the subject to the European Community Heads Conference. But a proposed free issue of campaign was rejected, and clearly that was a step too far. I spoke to Norman about those days, about how he felt, and what support he did get from Margaret Thatcher. He was, however, rather tight-lipped, because he's writing a book, due out next month, 
and the first chapter is about Mrs. Ch Mrs. Thatcher. So I got absolutely no help at all from Norman. Um, it was another pivotal moment when Princess Diana opened the first specialist HIV hospital ward in the UK and shook the hand of a patient not wearing a glove. It had a major effect on public attitudes. And she was constant in her support, making a number of important speeches as patron of the National AIDS Trust on the effect of AIDS on women and children. And for a short period, other members of the royal family were engaged. Princess Anne opened a summit attended by ministers of health from across the world. But her words, as you can see, really questioned her understanding of the issue. Even though I'm sure her sentiments were fine, she really was not in, in, really didn't grasp what it was they wanted to hear when she said the real tragedy concerns their innocent victims, people who become infected unknowingly, perhaps as a result of a blood transfusion, but possibly worst of all, those babies who are affected in the womb and are born with the virus. Princess Margaret and Prince Charles respectively opened and visited the London Lighthouse. We've had no more, as far as I wear, no more royal engagements since. And but towards the end of the 1980s, Norman Fowler moved on and there was a complete change of direction. Antiviral treatment meant that people were able to live with the disease and so AIDS was identified as a chronic long-term illness, capable of treatment or at least palliative care, and was defined by some as being on par with diabetes. But of course it is different from other chronic conditions because it is a communicable disease. And the Wing Fenced Aid Support Grant uh, to provide specific funding for local authority services, however, was introduced, but it was really the beginning of the downgrading of AIDS policy. The period of high-level panic amongst politicians was broadly ended by the end of 1987, influenced by an inquiry by the House of Commons Social Security Social Security Committee, chaired by Rennie Short MP, whose conclusions were that clearly the answer was prevention, education, and adequate health services. But of course, again, there was opposition, even to that view. The view of John Seal, a Harley Street specialist, was that there was a homosexual conspiracy, a secret society whose tentacles extended amongst all the key professional groups that the war against AIDS is a war of survival. If we lose, Britain and all its people will perish. I think that went just a little over the top. Um, the Conservative Family Group urged the repeal of the Liberal 1967 Sexual Offences Act and the removal of funding from Terence Higgins Trust. They opposed the government's moral stand and what they maintained is essentially a disease spread by immoral behavior. And tragically, though, however, their words were heard to a degree. The notorious Section 28 of the 1988 Local Government Act was enacted. It forbade local authorities to promote homosexuality. It caused confusion and anxiety, particularly for teachers. And for me, it was a proud moment when, after organising the campaign against it in the Lords, to see the amendment for its removal carried. For throughout the period of its existence, there were constant examples of education leaflets, uh, some from the Family Planning Association, of which I'm president, which it was alleged promoted sex in young people and was used as an argument for maintaining this rather destructive piece of legislation because it meant that actually no education and no support could be given to young people during that period of time. 
The findings of the AIDS Action Group, which had been given a year to energize areas of high prevalence to improve prevention and education, faltered and was never produced. The ministers of the day, Virginia Bottomley and Brian McWinney, questioned the parameters of the established AIDS policy. A pocket guide to sex produced by the Health Education Agency, a government body, was banned by Brian McWinney. This was seen as complete nonsense by people in the field. Penguin Books bought the rights and published it as the book the government tried to ban. And of course, everybody bought it because they wanted to know what it said. Um, and a safer sex advertising campaign which focused on the use of condoms was scrapped. The government vetoed a safer sex survey in which two million pounds had already been spent. An advert aimed at bisexuals had its word changed from when a married man has an affair to if a married man has an affair. And it was reported that at that time that with the Department of Health staff working on AIDS were actually fighting to keep their jobs. Ministers began to scrutinize every aspect of the work on AIDS. There was anxiety about the level of funding, funding that could be spent on other aspects of public health, on alcohol, smoking, and drugs. And the work of the cabinet committee came to an end. A report of the National Audit Office highlighted the crude way in which the Department of Health was allocating resources, meaning that in some instances, the money was being spent on other activities. And as a consequence, the aid support grant was cut, as was the Section 64 grant, which is a grant to local authorities, which meant that cuts by lo those local authorities to, uh, to organizations such as THT and the London Lighthouse. All this may give the impression that there was a complete decline in political interest, but that was, uh, and that there was a sort of complete uh, policy, hands-off policy, but that was not absolutely true. The remaining impasse against needle exchange was broken, and David Mellor, MP, the minister then, gave increased funding for GUM clinics for HIV testing. GUM clinics also screened for STIs, were at the time seen as a Cinderella service, so this additional funding was more than welcome. The debate moved, though, into new territory. Until then, HIV had been seen as a gay disease. Evidence, however, was now showing that the rate of heterosexual transmission was growing, but it was difficult for there to be a real understanding of the concept of women with HIV, and in, at that time were very much mar marginalized. There was a slightly different discussion on the subject between the Sunday Times and the independent newspapers. The Sunday Times argued, suppose that researchers are looking in the wrong place. Suppose HIV doesn't equal AIDS then we witnessed the biggest radical and scientific blunder of the century. This was countered by the independent with, but what if HIV does cause AIDS? What effect will such articles have on attempts to inform the public on safe sex or on the people who are suffering from AIDS and taking anti-HIV drugs? And of course, that rather sensible argument was the one that prevailed. And it was the BBC that reintroduced the debate. For the first time, a character with HIV was seen on TV. In 1991, the character Mark Fowler in EastEnders was diagnosed with HIV. And whilst, however, the storyline disappeared, in fact, it came back and then disappeared again, the level of demand for testing actually soared. Bernardo's conducted a survey of young people which showed they learned more about AIDS from the TV soap than from teachers, parents, or the tombstone adverts. 
And this may have been because sex education in schools was in such a state of flux and only to get worse. Lord Stollard, a Catholic Labour peer, campaigned and was successful in getting included in the 1993 Education Act as conscience cause for teachers and a parent opt-out from sex education lessons, and that is still with us today. Um, and it did take many years of campaigning to persuade the last Labour government that actually uh, personal health and social education and sex relations education should be a statutory subject in the school curriculum. But it did get lost in what we call the wash-up, which was just before the general election. And the current Secretary of State for Education says it's now firmly off the agenda, although at the same time telling everybody what a good thing it is, but, not in a, but it's um, voluntary rather than statutory. What he does say, and, and I don't disagree with this comment, is that girls should learn how to say no. Um, over this period, as government funding declined, the level of support for the voluntary sector from the public grew, responding, of course, to their charitable appeals. And Terence Higgins Trust received almost a million pounds in donations over the Christmas of 1991, with the proceeds of Queen's re-release chart stopper, Bohemian Rhapsody, going entirely to that charity, following the recent AIDS-related death of lead singer Freddie Mercury. And there was another very pivotal moment in this history, with the release of the film Philadelphia. Tom Hanks playing a gay solicitor who contacted AIDS and was ostracized by his firm. The film was so well uh, uh, accepted that his portrayal as a sympathetic, lovable character won him an Oscar. And I think that's it. that was a real, real moment for people who actually were suffering that actually you could have a character like that who could be recognized by, uh, by winning uh, an Oscar. And so we move on to 1997 and another change of government and the strategy on HIV changed again, starting with the establishments of the Community HIV and AIDS Prevention Strategy CHAPS, a prevention and health promotion campaign led by Terence Higgins Trust and funded by the department, directly specific at uh, MSM. And in 1999, the UK government was the first country in the world to commit uh, funding of 14 million pounds to HIV vaccine research. And very importantly, the government were acutely aware that many young pregnant women were infected with HIV and this could affect their unborn baby. And introduced that all pregnant women should be offered an HIV test as part of their routine care. At first, the nurses and clinicians were nervous to make the offer, but now it's the norm. The target was set of diagnosing 80% of HIV-positive pregnant women before delivery by the end of 20, uh, 2002, a target that was met. And the campaign to be, uh, proved to be enormously successful, seeing a dramatic reduction of the number of children born with HIV, now less than 2%. The expert advisory group on behalf of the government redefined AIDS policy in line with calls from stakeholders for government to re-examine HIV AIDS being a standalone issue. And following a long campaign, the government took the view that HIV AIDS should be a fundamental part of a sexual health strategy. But no, at that time, no such strategy existed. However, that was soon to be corrected. The Prime Minister appointed the First Minister for Public Health, Tessa Jowell MP, 
who agreed to the setting up of a committee to produce the first ever strategy for sexual health and HIV. And the committee was chaired by Professor Mike Ardler, who had been a campaigner from the very early days. Its aims were that in 10 years, HIV transmission would be reduced, there would be increased testing, reduced unintended pregnancy rates, improved health and social care, and the elimination of stigma. Aims that were broad and ambitious, and which recognized that sexual health had to be seen in the wider context of not only being an important part of overall well-being physically and mentally, but also a key, a key to our identity as human beings. And it did then become the linchpin to which we all worked. To implement the strategy, the government set up the Independent Advisory Group on Sexual Health and HIV, which I was proud to chair from its first meeting in May 2004 until the government disbanded it in the bonfire of uh, the Quangos in 2011. And I have to say, it was a big committee of 28 made up of leaving experts from all sectors of the sexual health and HIV and statutory and voluntary sector, service users and providers. Um, and my first meeting as purely a campaigner, not an expert at all, I went to that meeting absolutely terrified because I thought they're all going to get technical and I won't know what on earth they're talking about and I will show myself up. But I have to say they were the most wonderful group of people that I think I've worked with and they respected um, my, the, the fact that I was there to try and make things happen rather than to try and get involved in the details of the treatment or anything else that related to, the, uh, to um, HIV and sexual health. And we were funded by the Department of Health. We were an independent body, however. I called it a critical friend, a catalyst for change, a conduit, a persuader of government. And so the question was, how successful were we in that time? The government identified sexual health as one of its key priorities. It was recognised for the first time as a public health issue. £300 million was designated to tackle the high rates of STIs and HIV and improve services across sexual health. A review of the GUM services was commissioned to access need, to identify problems and spread good practice. A chlamydia screening programme was rolled out nationally and 99.75% of patients attending GUM services were offered an appointment within 48 hours of contacting the service, and resources were made available to make sure it all happened. A national support team was established to support delivery in the field, working principally in the most difficult areas. We persuaded the Treasury to reduce VAT on condoms, and the chair of the Advertising Standards Authority, Chris Smith, to lift the watershed on condom advertising. Emergency contraceptive is now available over the counter from pharmacies, and we finally persuaded the government about the personal uh, health and social education should be a statutory element of the school. But as I said before, that, that later got, um, got lost. And we were the committee that was designated to, uh, to devise the sexual health agenda up to uncovering the Olympics and the Paralympics. And the Football Association, we also talked to the Football Association of the need for awareness of raising of HIV and AIDS when the World Cup was held in South Africa. Um, and we had a meeting at the, FA, uh, at the FA. I have to say the great excitement for me was seeing all the silver in the, in, uh, and, uh, and all the cups in the inner, in, inner sanctum of, the, of Wembley. Um, 
But I didn't come out of that meeting feeling quite as happy as I'd gone in, because I was more than offended to see that they had a paragraph in their leaflet, boys beware. Um, women supporters somehow were irrelevant. Um, and they didn't sort of think it was necessary to say anything to protect the women who were going to go to South Africa. And they had to be persuaded of our case, because I did get a little upset and a little, and a little sharp, I have to say, when I was told, I don't know what we were worrying about because people don't die of AIDS anymore. Um, and uh, it had to be pointed out that there was such a thing as transmission, they could bring it all back to this country. Um, very simplistic, but necessary to actually say. Um, and we also uh, integrated and worked for holistic, uh, integrated and holistic services, including the recognition between sexual health, mental health, alcohol, drugs, and violence. And we argued strongly for GPs and hospital admissions to routinely test for HIV, not yet fully accomplished, but certainly improving. And we also played our part in influencing legislation, and I had the job of wearing another hat, sitting in the House of Lords, and working with the National Age Trust, succeeded in getting HIV classified as a disability under the Disab Disability Discrimination Act, so providing protection under the law against hate crime. And during the debate on the Equality Act, I was successful in getting the government to remove health questions from employers' pre-job application forms before the offer of a job is made, so preventing screening out of people with health conditions from the recruitment process. I have illustrated those successes to show how it's possible to make real progress when there is a representative committee coming together as a team with the stakeholders, the government, and the relevant officials in the department. And for those eight years, I think we made steady and calm progress. But there were two pieces of registration that had unintended consequences. The dispersal of asylum seekers, which poses health threat risks for people with HIV. And in 2004, the charging of treatment for asylum seekers, deterring them from going for treatment. And only after long arguments about health tourism, this charge was removed last year. But the immigration bill currently being debated in the Commons might end up by reversing that position. Seems to me that there is an, this is an example of an, the ambiguity between health concern for people who are affected or health concern less for the people affected and more for the wider community uh, put at risk by the greater prevalence of the disease. And that isn't interesting question which had to be answered all the way through this process. But we move on. 2010, a new government. Every government we see a new change. A new direction. The national support team was disbanded, as was the independent advisory group, being replaced by a non-independent sexual health forum, which held co-chair, and a new strategy was uh, promised. In 2011, uh, Norman Fowler, with his influence within government, secured a, Lords all, a House of Lords all-party select committee on HIV-AIDS. And the select committee was vital in ensuring that HIV stayed on the agenda. For HIV was no longer visible in the UK, people not understanding the facts about HIV and myths still being perpetrated. The report of the select committee concluded discrimination against those affected by HIV was based at best on ignorance and at worst on prejudice, which we stressed underlined the need for a general public awareness campaign. 
The Select Committee made 59 recommendations and made it clear that the government should recognise the scale of the HIV and AIDS challenge, that we deplored the lack of resources for preventative work, that it was only through an effective and co coordinated prevention policy that we could start to arrest the numbers of people living with HIV. Investment in prevention is key. The aim has to be break down, to break down the barriers that stand in the way of people coming forward for testing, treatment and support. However, announcements cuts by the coalition government are likely to affect services. The £25 million allocated for HIV and AIDS support services is no longer ring-fenced, so it can be used for any, any other service, and it will affect counselling, support, staff training, as well as core services. But the biggest change that has happened on, in, in respect of HIV has been the Health and Social Care Act which brought the most fundamental and dramatic changes to service provision. Public health, including HIV, becoming the responsibility of local government, accompanied by the establishment of an executive body, Public Health England. And we have, we have our representative here, and I'm delighted that she's here. Um, and it is the job of PHE to guide local government in carrying out its new role. But commissioning for HIV is split between local and national level. NHS England looks at treatment and prevention, with testing and care being the responsibility of local government, so creating uh, a concern about the complexity. And this morning I was actually chairing a sexual health conference and one of the speakers talked about the reforms that we just had and she said that she actually referred it to something like a car crash. Um, and in some ways that's true, but in other ways it's, it's not quite as bad uh, as maybe a little bump actually between two cars rather than a car crash. Um, the promised strategy paper came earlier this year, not as a strategy but as a framework for sexual health policy improvement. It's a useful document in that it, it uh, identifies the government's aspiration for the future of HIV to reduce onward transmission and avoidable deaths from HIV. In details, its aspirations are individuals should understand how HIV is prevented, individuals should understand where to get prompt access to confidential HIV testing, and individuals diagnosed with HIV should receive prompt referral into care and that high quality care services are maintained. The question is how to make those aspirations a reality but the document also makes it clear that the government is no longer responsible for implementation, that it's now up to an amalgamation of local government, Public Health England, NHS England, GPs, and the local health and wellbeing boards. And I was a little disturbed uh, uh, to hear uh, last Sunday when concerns were expressed on World AIDS Day about the, the, the fact that the, the um, commissioning process was being split, to hear the government say, or virtually say, nothing to do with OSGOV, it's for local government and NHS England put right. And last week, Public Health England published its first analysis of the position of HIV, which shows that there are 98,499 people currently living with HIV, a fifth of whom, 21,900, are unaware of their infection, and 47% who were diagnosed late which strengthens the need, of course, for the campaigns for early testing. And 490 people died. 
And the level of late diagnosis has been reduced by 11% over the last few years due to the great deal of concentration being given by third sector organisations to the importance of early testing. The evidence shows, however, that there hasn't been any major effect on the level of transmission. And there is another new factor that has to be taken into account, which does come into the report, is the growing number of over 50s with HIV and the consequences for care. Now, this country has a reputation for having excellent HIV care, certainly the best in Europe, and that is going to have to be maintained. So we are at a further stage of change in the history of HIV and AIDS, a history that being one of a trade-off between the stakeholders, parliament, and the medical profession. The health world in particular has learned to respect more an individual's autonomy and know the limits of what it can and should demand. And this includes the autonomy of minorities, gay men, who generally choose different ways of being and living from the majority. But there is still an enormous task ahead, for whilst over the last 30 years we've seen huge developments in our understanding of, uh, of HIV, the HIV virus, we've had improved testing procedures and increasing effective treatment and care of people living with HIV, and antiviral drugs, meaning that people living with HIV can lead a normal life. Risk-taking has increased, and the number of people living with HIV continues to rise. For a real reduction in those infected will require joint efforts between politics, education, health, religion, law enforcement, immigration, and social services. And we can only hope that the new environment in which we're now working will make that possible. But I really genuinely do believe that to succeed, government has to ensure coordination and accountability and take some national collective responsibility. But I want to go back to the beginning and end with two quotes, one from Chris Smith, where he revealed, when he revealed he was HIV positive, and one from Francis Maud, MP. Chris Smith in 2005 said, HIV hasn't stopped me tackling some of the most demanding jobs and demoting myself passionately to the causes I believe in. And if that realization helps to challenge prejudice and to give just a few other people the confidence and the determination to overcome that uncertainty, the fear and the difficulty, then it's worth talking about. And Francis Maud in 2006 said, I think if society generally and the government I served had served in, had been willing to recognize gay people, then there would have been less of a problem. A lot of people, like my brother, would not have succumbed to HIV and lost their lives. Francis Maud, 2006. And I think that is a sentiment we should all take to heart. Thank you. Thank you.